In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello, welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we've got a number of topics coming your way. Uh, we'll discuss some updates on Iran. We're going to talk about um, smoking again, along with some uh, a Medicare for All stuff. Then we'll uh, talk a little bit about Trump's adjustments to the uh, SNAP program or the uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Yep. But before all of that, Michael... What is our theme for this week? So this week we have a very simple theme, um, which is to read beyond the headline. So all of our stories kind of um, are connected by the idea that in order to get a, a reliable understanding of, of um, a situation, pr- almost no matter what or how simple it is, you need to scratch a little bit deeper. You need to look beyond the common... Um, narrative of what the situation is. You need to look into at least some of the details beyond the headline or the or the um, the lead in a news story. Because the fact is that you know, even in a simple, straightforward um, policy, it's worth providing your attention. It's worth paying attention to what's going on because the way that small inconsistencies and small myths can really grow and develop over time and kind of grow to dominate a whole conversation and define a way of viewing the world that's totally false. We've seen again and again. So one of the things we'll talk about today is like the supplemental nutritional assistance program and that as like a really important welfare program in the United States. Yeah, it's easy to see a headline that says uh, Trump administration uh, uh, restricts the rules for recipients of SNAP and to get outraged about that. And we're not going to be arguing that you shouldn't be outraged about Mm -hmm. it, but you need to make sure that that outrage is focused at the right policy. So going beyond the headlines is how you prevent yourself from straw manning. Exactly. And at the same, at the same time, exactly the same topic, you could see a headline, Trump administration encourages work for SNAP recipients. Yeah. And that sounds great. It's a, and it like fights. It's uh, moving against the the myth of uh, you know like the idea that people are just taking advantage of our welfare system and and like maybe that sounds really good. But if you don't read beyond the headline and get into the details of the argument, you don't know whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And just because Trump's name is attached to it, doesn't mean doesn't determine it one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, if I were a betting man, but, <laughs> but yeah. anyway, so the fact, the facts of it matter and the facts aren't always completely characterized by a headline. I mean, you could have, uh, you could have a newspaper headline say Mike Pompeo says, uh, Salamani was imminent threat to the United States. And that's just the headline. And people read that and they think, oh, well, I guess he was an imminent threat to the United States. But then it doesn't provide the context of but so-and-so-and-so-and-so, sure. uh, which we will get more into that a little bit later in the podcast. But it is very important to recognize that oftentimes you can tell the bias of a newspaper based on how they frame their headline. And if you don't look into the, deeper into that story, 
and see what are the details of it, what are the arguments, what are the facts, then you could be easily led astray. Exactly. All right. So as we stay with the theme and dig a little bit deeper into topics that are of interest to you, uh, we'll start off by talking a little bit about um, the situation with Iran. Just provide some updates on that. Wait, did something happen in Iran? Uh, a couple things, like 150 I, I, million things have happened. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I've been living in Iraq. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> that time I did mean to make that joke. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Nathan, why don't you talk to us a little bit about exactly how we got to this uh, situation um, in Iran right now? Yeah. So last week, I think we should have spent some time giving a bit more context. So according the timeline that the Trump administration wants you to think about is uh, Iran starts to escalate aggression with us. They attack our embassy. We kill their general. That's it. Last week, we gave a bit more context by talking about the Iran nuclear deal. But today, I want to just give a little bit more context, because a common thing that a lot of Republicans and conservatives like to point out when it comes to discussing Iran is how brutally oppressive the theocracy of Iran is. And that is absolutely true. They brutally oppress women, um, LGBT people, and it is, it, it's terrible. Theocracy is fundamentally terrible, which is funny because a lot of Republicans are trying to argue for a Christian theocracy, but that's beside the point. So I think that it is important to recognize, why is Iran a theocracy? Well, hmm. hasn't it always been that way? No, actually it hasn't. In fact, in the 50s, they had a democratically elected prime minister named Mohammed Mossadegh, and he was a secular leader. And he was democratically elected. So wouldn't it make sense for the United States and for, you know, other other uh, developed countries uh, in the West to be like, yeah, yeah, I want to have good relationship relations with this guy. I want to encourage this because we want to encourage democracy around the world. Wouldn't that make sense? It certainly would make sense, considering the trillions and trillions of dollars and and millions of lives we've spent over the past 50 or 60 years doing like executing exactly that project around the world. Vietnam, Korea, <laughs> Iraq. But there's one problem. He committed a terrible sin. He sought to nationalize Iran's oil industry. And because of that, U.S. and British intelligence agencies orchestrated a coup to oust him and install the Shah of Iran. Well, don't you know, dear Nathan, that's not democracy. That's <laughs> communism. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, he wouldn't trade oil with the rest of the world. So they overthrew him and installed a theocracy. And, you know, lo and behold, eventually that theocracy turned against us because, of course, it did. So just recognize when you talk about how horrific the regime, the theocratic regime is in Iran, you're absolutely correct. But we installed that because we wanted oil. And then you also have lots of other tension, ways in which tensions had been increasing over years between U.S. and Iran, like the hostage crisis, the Contra affair. Um and then it wasn't until uh, 2013 where Iran's uh, leader started talking to Barack Obama, um, who is this new uh, moderate president named uh, Hassan Rouhani. And when they talked, it was the first t 
top-level conversation between the two nations in 30 years. And then you have the uh, the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, which we talked about last week. And then that brings us to Trump deciding to trash the deal. And then uh, tensions increased over the last year. And that ended with us assassinating Soleimani. So let's turn the clock back a couple days before Trump and his administration went in and assassinated Qasem Soleimani. Um, so we had uh, the... Um, Iraqi militia group, which was believed to be controlled by Soleimani's Quds Force and the Iran's as an as an proxy uh, an Iran as a proxy force attacking and occupying the U.S. embassy in Iraq, um, and then you know so the uh, so that happens and generals gather and the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, fly down to Mar-a-Lago where Trump is vacationing. Um, he's having a great a great week on the on the golf course and they they fly down there to which pre- he constantly criticized obama for <laughs> to have a discussion about exactly what to do in response to the attack on the embassy um, and they they present him a list of options yeah several options actually and the funny thing is the only reason why they had the assassinate Soleimani option on the table was because they viewed that as the most extreme response and that would make the other suggestions seem more reasonable but they didn't think that he would actually take it but the issue is and at first he didn't he didn't um because it was it was originally presented to him uh on december 28th and then he started watching TV and he started uh, reportedly, according to the New York Times, uh, Mr. Trump watched fuming as television reports showed Iranian backed attacks on the American embassy in Baghdad. And this is according to uh, the Department of Defense and administration officials that told the New York Times this. So he watched TV. He got outraged and he was like, you know what? Let's just assassinate him. Let's just let's just do an assassination. And everybody was just shocked. They were stunned that he had taken this option because, again, they didn't actually want him to take it. And in fact, this is apparently a strategy that has been used by Pentagon officials with several presidents. Sure. And perhaps it worked with several presidents who were even headed or insane at all. But I I mean, I'm almost wondering if like. Uh, obviously Trump is an idiot and he shouldn't have done this, but I'm almost wondering if we should put more blame on the military officials. Like, do you realize who Trump is? He's an idiot. Of course he's going to choose the more extreme option. Sure. You should not put that on the table if you don't want him to take it because he's stupid enough to take it. And and the thing is, like, I've been in this situation, most not in... The government, but in like boardrooms where you present a set of recommendations to an executive and you, I mean, this is, this is a pretty common strategy. You, you, you present a multitude of options at different levels of efficaciousness and extremity so that they, you can one, gauge their um, appetite uh, for different, for different options and, and two, provide them with a nice breadth so that they can 
have, you know, they feel empowered to choose what they want. But your endpoints always have to be within the bounds of reasonableness because I've had it happen many times where someone chooses the more most extreme option, shocking the room, and you're 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 totally blown away. But you have to be prepared for that. So the 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 most the craziest thing to me is like, you know, you present this as an option, thinking that there's no way that it's going to happen, and then, like, I wonder if they were like based on the activity um, in executing this and communicating the assassination to the public. I wonder if they were even prepared to actually enact this at all. Like they quickly sent a bunch of troops over to the region. Like it was, it seemed like they were very behind the eight ball on actually executing this, which would make sense if they never believed that it was a possibility in the first place. So in case it isn't clear, Michael and I are not saying that there shouldn't have been any response to uh no, the tensions that um iran had been uh had been brewing with us the the attack on the embassy um we're not saying that there shouldn't have been any response but trump did choose the most extreme pon- response that his own military officials did not actually want him to do <laughs> yeah so now let's talk about a little bit of an update on exactly what the what the narrative is was from the DOD and from the Trump administration about about why the United States actually took this action. Last week Michael and I presented our own defeasibility test where we said that if it was proven that it was clear that uh, Soleimani did present a threat to the American people like specifically to the American homeland to America. Yeah, the an imminent threat, as as the DOD had said. Then we would be like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, you should have you should have assassinated him because he was about to attack our country. So there's been a lot of walk back, though. Hmm. So first off, when they first presented they it, they must have heard our defeasibility test <laughs> and, and gotten cold feet and decided to back off. Yeah, know? yeah. Um. So. Pompeo was in an interview with John Berman and John Berman was specifically pressing on him to figure out whether the attack was in the, or in the region or whether it was on the American homeland. And he pressed him on this for a while. And finally Pompeo admitted these threats were located in the region. So there was never any threat of attack on America the way they had initially framed it was, I think, purposely ambiguous to make people think, oh, crap, they were going to attack us here. There was an imminent threat. We need to do something about it. And he just admitted that that is not what, what actually happened. So then the narrative became, well, they were going, there was an imminent threat that they would start attacking our forces in the region. But again, provided no evidence for this. And then that has now been walked back where they say, oh, but he's been constituting an imminent threat over the last few weeks. I don't know if uh, if they understand what the word imminent means, but in case Mike Pompeo is listening to us, because I'm sure he's a big fan of the show. Let me just educate you, Mr. Pompeo. Imminent means about to happen. And importantly for like the legal justification of being able to justify taking this action of assassinating a foreign um, 
government official. It would have to be an attack that would actually be prevented by the killing of this official. An imminent attack, so something that's about to happen, that which this would actually help prevent, which it would not. Yeah. If you so like if an attack is imminent, it's likely planned. Those plans have probably been communicated. Unless Soleimani was going to come in himself, guns blazing. <laughs> it, the attack would have already been like like communicated and ready to go. If nothing else, you would have like set them off to like go do the attack that they had been prepared for. You know, like like there was a chain of command. There was a chain of succession. Soleimani has already been replaced. Like the killing of him, he was he was not like the person holding all this in his head, uncommunicated to everybody. The organization would have been prepared. Yeah. So <laughs> this would have done nothing yeah. to prevent an imminent attack. Yeah. Again, they admitted that there was no imminent attack. Yeah. Um, so their biggest cause for the assassination has now been completely debunked by their own walkbacks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe this is all part of then a larger strategy to bring Iran to the negotiating table, to get a really good deal Um that's better than the nuclear or the Iran nuclear deal. You know, you know, that's that has been Trump's talking point since even the campaign trail. The Iran nuclear deal is yeah, terrible. Right. Maybe maybe this is just a game of three-dimensional chess. Yeah. And like, I mean, the only way that we could possibly disprove that is if I don't know, Trump started tweeting about how he doesn't care about negotiation, but there's no way you would do something that dumb, right, Michael? No, he would never, ever do that. He would never say something along the lines of, and and this is a long one, guys, it's almost 200 characters. Quote, national security advisors suggested today that sanctions and protests have, quote, choked off Iran and will force them to negotiate. Actually, I couldn't care less if they negotiate. We'll, uh, we'll be totally up to them, but no nuclear weapons and don't kill your protesters. Wow. So he sounds crazy, but he just said, I don't care if they come to the negotiating table. Wow. Then what's, then what's the point of all this? Like, what's the point of increasing sanctions, of depriving the Iranian people of medical attention and food and like putting pressure on their economy? What's the point of attacking Soleimani and backing out of the nuclear deal to begin with if, if the idea is not to get a better outcome? Yeah, which normally I would say, well, because he wants a war with them. But it, that's not even clear anymore. Because yeah. what's interesting is uh, recently there was uh, the Iranian bombing of a U.S. military base. In Iraq. In Iraq. But the funny thing is, they had apparently shared this with Iraq, Mm -hmm. who then shared it with us, so we got all of our people out, so there were no American casualties. Which leads me to believe that this was their way of saving face with their own people while also giving us an out. Mm -hmm. So, like, they can go to their people and say, hey, uh, we bombed the hell out of one of their military bases to seek vengeance for Soleimani. And and then the people are like, yay, yeah, they've they've responded. Um, But then that gives Trump the ability to be like, oh, well, yeah, they attacked us, but, like, they didn't kill any Americans. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, everything's cool. We're fine. Which he said, which he is said basically it. what he said. Yeah. Um, so which is kind of a brilliant move on the part of Iran. If that was, if that was the entire was plan, goal. if that was their goal. Yeah. Um, and they made a good show of it. They fired 10 ballistic missiles, which is yeah. experts have say that's like a big escalation from the mortars and others like small yeah. armaments. Cause if they had killed used. a single American, then it would have been war. Yeah. Like absolutely. it would have absolutely been war. And they knew that. Yeah. But they, they wanted to make sure that they, that they avoided that. Yeah. I think. And I'm um, so, so the weird thing is then that it's not even clear that what Trump wants is a war. So he doesn't, if he doesn't want a war, he doesn't want to negotiate. What the hell does he want? What was the, what was the goal? And the answer I believe is simple. There is no goal. Bad guy go boom. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, kill, kill bad guy. <laughs> Honestly, like he made a promise on the campaign trail to kill this bad guy. He got a lot of um, attention uh, when he killed Abegdadi, and I think he was probably just going for the polling. Yeah. The so funny they, thing is um, that according to a recent poll, actually 51% of voters disprove of Trump's Iranian policy. 45% say that, um, Soleimani's killing has made Americans less safe. Um, and so it, it doesn't really seem like it's been a particularly popular move. Yeah. But at least he's responding to the 64% of people that say they oppose a war with Iran. So that's Look, good. I, I don't think that there's a strategy. He's just a thick-headed, impulsive idiot who watches a television program and remembers that he has powers and then uses those powers in an impulsive and idiotic way. We gave a child control of the strongest military in the world. What the hell do you think was going to happen? There's yeah. no plan. There's no strategy. There's just chaos because that is Trump's mind. Yeah. I'm curious to see what happens next with the Iranian people and whether we can actually... So Iran has said that while their official response has concluded that it is their long-term goal to expel the United States from the region and reduce our influence totally. So I'm curious to see how they end up doing that. They still have access um, to a bunch of proxy forces throughout the region. I'm curious to see what those proxy forces do because they are semi-independent actors and they were all very loyal or many of them were very loyal to Qasem Soleimani. And so I'm curious to see whether they take independent action. I imagine if, because Iran seems to have such a measured response in attacking a uh, U.S. military base without causing any casualties, that they have probably put out some kind of moratorium on attacks by proxy forces, not wanting them to um, start anything with the United States. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see how this all plays out um, in kind of the long the long term um i will say like if iran was trying to play the international grown-up here like the per the the country that was taking measured responses while the united states was taking outlandish ones uh, which it's kind of seemed like for a while um or at least post the Soleimani killing um it definitely misstepped Last week, when it uh, shot down a Ukrainian passenger jet accidentally, killing 176 people, um, and and sparking a bunch of uh, like reigniting a bunch of anti-government protests in in Tehran, um, 
So I'm curious to see kind of how all of that plays out. Because at this point, like the Iranian people do not have a hero. They're anti-United States because we have disrespected them. We've disrespected their country. We have killed one of their leaders. And their government, they're calling for, you know, their supreme leader to step down. Their government doesn't have their back. Um, so if the point was to increase instability in the region, check. All right, time for a lighter segment, Tips for Good. As you know, every week we like to come to you with a couple things you can keep in mind or a little, or you know, certain facts or behaviors that you can enact to make the world a little bit of a better place. Um, so Nathan, what, what's, uh, what's our Tips for Good this week? So our Tips for Good is uh, to avoid what Michael calls blooming. Yeah, that's, um, so that's a term of art in my family. We're the Blooms, um, and if you don't know who we are, we, uh, so I'm the youngest of five brothers who are all very loud and opinionated and strong-willed. Um, very smart. And we are the sons of a father who is strong-willed and wild and thoughtful and opinionated. And, and very smart. And this tip for good came from my wife and my brothers' wives, kind of indirectly. Um, and it's basically what blooming is in our family is when you feel like you know something and you're not lying or pretending, but you may not actually know it. But be being opinionated and smart and confident, you go ahead and say it with all the confidence of facts without sufficient information or data backing you up and this is a way to like you can really dominate a conversation this way and you might get pretty close to the answer sometimes you know if you're thinking yourself through you're connecting the dots you're trying to like infer things and extrapolate but the problem is when you do that you have the opportunity to be wrong a lot because you're not actually operating from a factual basis you're operating from a confidence basis. You're not really making stuff up, but you kind of are. And so when you go out and, and, and dominate a conversation with that kind of thing, you, you have a really negative consequence, which is to, to prevent people that might have more factual information from feeling like they can and should speak up and contribute to the conversation. When you say something that isn't factual really confidently, people have a tendency to believe you. And people that might actually know something more than you may not contribute for fear that having spoken second and being less confident, they might be either wrong or, or you know, they might be, um, you know, shut up. And so basically, <laughs> the, the tip for good this week is to be very aware when you know something and when you don't. Yeah. It's totally okay not to know things. Yeah. So from now on, whenever I notice you doing that, I'm going to say, okay, Bloomer. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's awesome. Okay, um, Bloomer. That's perfect. Yeah. See, see, I would actually call that something else. I would call that uh, Ben Shapiroing. 
Okay, fair um, enough. That's something that he definitely does a lot. Of. And that's the thing. You see it all over the place. Yeah. You see it. People try to extrapolate from limited information all the time. It's a really common thing to do. The problem is that when you do it, you know, you are substituting confidence for information. Yeah. And so that's the tip for good this week. Go out there, be confident in not when you don't know things, and go and find the information instead. Don't be a bloomer. All right. Up next, we're going to add a little bit to our conversation from last week about the smoking age because we had a viewer submit a question for us to talk about and, like, we now have viewers that do that. So, yeah. Michael, what was what was the question? So, uh, yeah, definitely shout out to uh, listener SMJ who who uh, reached out with this question. So, how does the Prospectrum square Medicare for all with smoking and other high risk behavior? With Medicare for all, it seems like it becomes the government's business to discourage unhealthy behaviors. I think that's a really good question because it's it definitely kind of very interesting. Yeah, it kind of gets at. You know, a lot of the a lot of the more um, nuanced concepts we were talking about last week, which are such, are, you know, around the purposes of government and how you square a government whose purpose is to uh, to help um, provide good lives for its citizens with a government that still respects individual liberty and freedom, yeah. which is really an important thing to square together because that is what enables the coexistence of a safety net and the existence of a, you know, um, a, a welfare system with individual liberty and, and civil liberty. And when you can, and, and if you talk to conservatives about social safety nets and the welfare system, that's one of the, their main concerns. They talk about like the slippery slope to socialism or slippery slope to communism. And it's not just about taking all your money for taxes and giving it and spreading it around. It's also about taking your individual liberty because now the government has a vested interest in your behavior. Your government has a vested interest in you, say, not smoking. So they're just going to ban you from smoking because... They can, and because now that they've paid you to do something, they should. Yeah. And so I think those that intuition is super common. I find that in myself. Even when we were recording last week, that was like tickling in the back of my head. How are we squaring high-risk behavior like smoking, like um, you know, drinking even, other high-risk behaviors with Medicare for All? Yeah. Well, one thing I would say is that as it stands... Uh, health insurance companies already do take certain steps to limit your rights. This is just a matter of shifting that to the government, which the government is beholden to people and the insurance companies are beholden to profit. So if your main priority is, I am going to protect my profits, then it incentivizes you to uh, potentially have um, certain limits on people's behaviors. For example, there actually have been some companies that have been trying to implement certain rules on uh, their employees' behavior. Apparently, U-Haul has recently announced um, that they're going to start refusing to hire employees who smoke in like 22 states. Um, 
Now, the, the justification on the surface is, oh, well, we're worried about their health, but no, what they're actually worried about is the fact that they will have to pay more in health insurance for people that are smoking. So that fear of the, of the potential of having our freedoms limited, I would argue, is exacerbated when you put a profit motive in there. And you should be more worried about that under the current system than you would be under a Medicare for all system. Yeah, so let's talk about the analogy between a pr private insurance and Medicare for all. Because I think one of the reasons why this like a, seems like a really intuitive argument is that it does exist in private insurance. If you smoke or take other overtly risky behavior, you are a more risky person to insure. You will likely cost more money in the long run. And so you are a net contributor, a net positive, uh, risky contributor to the pool, right? You're making the pool on average overall more risky. And so as an insurance provider whose goal is to be able to run an insurance pool while creating a profit and providing insurance for the participants, your goal is to go out and extract that uh, premium a required increase to compensate for risky behavior. Okay, so how is that different from what the government would do? So we've made the argument on this podcast that the services that you would receive as a recipient of Medicare for All would be analogous to the services you receive now, and in many cases, actually improved. You would get to choose your health care provider uh, uh, with more freedom. Because they would all be in the same pool. Exactly. You wouldn't have in-network versus out-of-network costs. You wouldn't have a bunch of fees and stuff like that. So No premiums, no deductibles. But where this is different is how it's funded, of course, because it's funded via taxes, via progressive tax system. And so the difference is that when you are a risky candidate in private insurance, you, the point is for you to help fund that increased risk. You pay more in premiums in order to pay for the fact that you cost more to insure. That's not true in a system of Medicare for all because the goal is not to make money on the pool itself. The goal is to meet the American people where they are and get them the health care they need. And so the point is not to say you are, you are a net riskier person than average. You are going to cost us more. You will need to pay more in. The point is or to say- Or change your behavior. Or to, yeah, or necessarily change your behavior. Yeah, exactly. The point is to say- this is how this is how much it will cost to provide medical benefits to the people of the United States. This is how much we will need to to um, tax the people of the United States in order to be able to provide those benefits. And the question of whether it's an economic benefit is whether that total cost provided by the government is going to be less than the total cost or the average cost provided by private companies. Which and we, very studies have shown that it is. Exactly. I mean, as it stands, the United States spends more per capita on health care than any of the next uh, 10 richest countries. That's ridiculous because we don't insure everybody. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's saying, oh, well... Uh, like conservatives are trying to argue like, oh, uh, a Medicare for all system would cost so much more and it would be crazy and it'd be insane. But why are why is almost every other developed country able to do it and then spend less money than us under our current system? Yeah. And so whereas the goal for a private company is to both predict how much it's going to cost and add a little on top of that, the point of the government is just to predict how much it's going to cost and fund it fully. And so 
with that in mind, um, I once you break down that intuition and kind of get past the idea that the goal is to make sure that the system um, is like the lowest possible cost and to understand that it's more about the government providing a service than it is about the government balancing a budget. The question of whether it's a good thing is whether it improves service to the American people. The question of whether it's economically viable is whether we can fund it um, at, you know, while net reducing the financial burden to um, people in need in the United States. And the answer to both of those things seems to be yes, that we, we can fund it and it, can, and it is feasible and it would improve the quality of our health care. So then, so it seems like where we end up is that the government needs to be a descriptive force. This is how much it's going to cost and how it's going to be applied and where it's going to be applied. And it, it's not, you're not, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're distributing the costs over the system and reducing the costs for people on average. And so you might say like, well, it's going to cost more for you, a person choosing to smoke, than it is for me, a person who is healthy and doesn't eat McDonald's and doesn't smoke. Why should I be paying more for you? And I think that gets down to more of a philosophical argument about the purpose of government and the purpose of Medicare for all. Because what we argue on this show is not just that it's an economically viable program, which we argue for the most part, because that seems to be one of the big um, arguments against Medicare for All that comes from the conservative side. But it's also a just program. It, it aligns with the purpose of government, which is to provide the means for people and the context for people to pursue good lives. Yeah. Equal opportunity. Exactly. And by providing the basics like SNAP, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, like healthcare, we can, and in, in this incredibly abundant society that we live in, we can provide great lives to our people very reasonably. Yeah. And so now let's talk about like, okay, well, sure, the government, you know, can provide healthcare to everybody and it can do it at a reasonable cost, including smokers. Doesn't it make sense just to like tell them that they can't smoke maybe or like force them not to? Doesn't like doesn't now that the government has a financial interest in um, the activities of the people, doesn't that mean that they should have some say? No, not at all. Yeah, I'd argue that it wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I have a couple reasons for that. One, the government doesn't have a financial interest. The government has an interest in citizens. Yeah. The government has a budget to balance, but they're not, they don't, that's like the point we were making earlier. Yeah. It doesn't have a financial interest. Yeah, the problem with that way of thinking, as as Michael alluded to, is you're still thinking about it in terms of our own system. And in our own system, yes, the money is the important thing. The money is the end goal. But in a system of Medicare for all, that's not necessarily the end goal. The end goal is a healthy, healthy populace, helping people to, to live as long as possible. So, again, the framing of that argument and the framing of that question is still kind of from the point of view of our current system, which we're trying to uproot. 
exactly. Okay, then. So if the point is to have to help people lead healthier lives, why not just ban cigarettes? Prevent people from smoking and drinking and eating McDonald's and eating all fast food. Why not just ban everything that's bad for people? Well, you know, this is going to sound like a very intellectually uh, developed answer, but because freedom, man. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, because freedom. And like a Medicare for all system is part of helping to preserve those freedoms and yeah. allowing us to uh, basically do more with our lives. Yeah. So, so yeah, in making, in, in making the illusion of, of that trade-off, you're actually implicitly making a lot of assumptions that conservatives make when they, when they make counter-arguments to the welfare, welfare programs and to like a social safety net. Basically, you are accepting that if they have... If they have financial input, if they're giving you like a privilege of a safety net, then they should have, they should be able to like control your behavior. And that's really not necessarily the case because again, the purpose of government is to enable people, enable, not force, not like require, but enable people to live good lives. And that means respecting people as individuals, as autonomous, as participants, not pawns. Yeah. And so it's frustrating when you talk about a lot of liberal programs because the language that uh, liberal intellectuals and policymakers often use is honestly relatively dehumanizing of people that make choices that are not mainstream choices. So people that make choices that are contrary to their, like I, the thing that bothers me is when people say people are voting against their interest. Now, okay, I get it. Like if like, a lot of times people literally are because of the information they're getting and it's, and it's bad information. And it's leading them to make bad choices. But the fact is that that doesn't mean we're going to limit your voting rights. That doesn't mean we're going to limit your action. We like the point is that whatever information you have, however educated you are, wherever you are in your life, we're like, however worthy of respect as a government, you're respected as an individual, as a, a person that's able to make choices. And as long as those choices don't, uh, affect like overtly, directly, negatively the people around you, you should be free to make them so that you can pursue your own understanding of the good in your life or the bad or whatever have you, whatever interest you have. The point of the government is to be a respectful actor that enables people to live good lives. And if that means smoking, okay. If that means McDonald's, okay. All of those things contribute to the cost of a healthcare program, and it's in the government's interest to help you make the right choice. It's in the government interest to provide, you know, SNAP assistance that emphasizes purchasing of healthy food. It's in the government's interest to invest in marketing materials through the CDC that notify people of the risks of smoking and you know using vaporizers and things like that and it's in the government's interest to regulate those industries so Absolutely. like the government regulates how much poop is in your mcdonald's burger yeah um i don't know why we keep using the example of mcdonald's both you and i hate mcdonald's yeah but but i, I guess mean, but but their like, fries are my guilty pleasure but the fact is that as an autonomous individual i don't even I like their fries right. but like 
Well, but, you're, but, you're but a Wendy's the, guy. I'm a Wendy's guy. Um, but the point is that um, when the government steps in with certain regulations, it makes sense to put those regulations on the producers, but not on the consumers. Yeah. Like, make the producers make sure that there's not exceedingly like arsenic in their cigarettes yeah make sure that like the people that sell cbd are selling cbd oil that's not laced with something or or are selling like high quality like the point is to to regulate things so that when people make a choice it's most likely the choice they think they're making yeah they need to know exactly what they're getting yeah that's why you have the sugar content listed on your cereal yeah. It's so that when you choose Lucky Charms, you know you're getting 24 grams of sugar for a half cup of cereal. And that is the relationship between the government, the people, and healthcare. It's so that they don't treat you ever as a means only, which is often the language that ends up being rolled up with liberal policies, just people being, you know, like used as a tax base, especially like the wealthy used as a tax base, not as a means only, but as an end. You can be used as a means partially as a contributor for society, but always ultimately as an end in yourself yep. to be respected. And now time for our favorite segment, Asshat of, of the week. week. So Nathan, who's our asshat this week? Well, Michael, his name is Andrew Clavon. He is a novelist and he has a podcast with The Daily Wire. And he's a conservative commentator. And he had some things to say about his ability to suspend disbelief in Netflix's new fantasy action uh, series, The Witcher. Now, a little disclaimer. Nathan is a huge fan of The Witcher. I'm a huge fan of The Witcher. Um, I, I love the video game. I have played it for hours. Uh, I love the TV show. I'm planning on reading the books. Um, and I personally, the Witcher is very much a guilty pleasure for me. <laughs> I don't feel guilty at all when I watch it. Um, although the coin to my Witcher song has been stuck in my head. And now it's stuck in your head. Now it's stuck in your, if you've, if you've heard it, it is now stuck in your head <laughs> and it will be for the, for the rest of time. So this guy. So anyways, he had trouble suspending his disbelief in it. Now you might ask, well, what is it? That he f about the show that he found unbelievable. Was it the dragons? The was, monsters? Was it the sorcerers? Was it uh, the idea that somehow this medieval group created mutants that had special powers? Was it the fact that there was this, uh, one of the main characters is this uh, daughter who was born like with this weird ability to make everything shake and like manipulate time and space? No. no that's not... What he was not that that's it was not about what the queen was. queen calanthe queen calanthe here's what he said immediately i was put off by the fact that there's a queen in this who fights like a man <laughs> there's a couple of scenes where women fight with swords and i just hate these scenes because no women can fight with swords Zero women can fight with yeah. a sword. In case when he said no women can fight with swords, it wasn't clear. He meant zero. Yeah, he meant zero, zero in all of history. So I guess there's like, if if a woman tries to touch a sword, it just burns her. Yeah, like it just starts burning. Yeah. And that she sounds has to drop like it. something that would be in The Witcher. <laughs> 
so I guess he never read up on the history of shield maidens <laughs> or Joan uh, of Arc or Joan of Arc. Um, like, look, I actually used to fence. Um, and I can tell you, there are a lot of women fencers. I got my ass kicked by many of them. There are a lot of women that are incredibly good at sword fighting. You see, when it comes to sword fighting, even if you're trying, if even if you, uh, allow him if, if you concede an argument about like physical strength or whatever a lot that goes into sword fighting is not necessarily about physical strength it's totally. about skill it's about strategy it's about distance it's about footwork and speed yeah women are just as, can be just as good at that as men that's a stupid argument he has no understanding of how swords work and and really important so he went on to say that all men all men, not just some men, not just strong men, not just big men. All men are stronger than any woman, not just weak women, not just small women, not just not average women. No, all. So to him, it's like literally impossible for any woman to be stronger than a man. So if you've ever seen um, female MMA fighting, good news, guys. You, you can, can beat, beat them. them. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what? I always, I was always afraid that uh, Ronda Rousey could probably kick my ass, but it's good to know that according to this guy, like goodness. I can walk up to her and you I should can probably be, pick a fight. Yeah. With we her. should pick a fight. No way. <laughs> he should pick a fight. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. Go pick a fight with Ronda Rousey. Yeah. See how, that see works how long, out. see how that works out. Yeah. So I don't know if this guy is really an idiot or if he's just trying to be an edgelord. But he is absolutely, positively, 100% an, an asshat. Congratulations, Andrew, for being our asshat of the week. All right, our last segment, we want to talk a little bit about the fact that the Trump administration has recently announced changes to the implementation of SNAP. So, Michael, what is SNAP? Yeah, so we were worried that with, you know, the war and impeachment, this might have gotten lost. And so the SNAP program is, stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and it's food stamps. It is the national, uh, the federal program run through the Department of Agriculture that provides uh, aid for um, people who need it to purchase food. Now, there are category restrictions. You can't just buy anything with SNAP, and nor can you buy all food. Um, you have to buy like certain kinds of food. You can't. I don't think you can buy energy drinks. You can't buy alcohol. Like There are a number of restrictions on what you can buy because the point is for people to be able to feed themselves nutritious food. And so an estimated 36 million people, or one in 10 Americans, are recipients of SNAP. 11 million of those people are children. Um, and... It's a really important program because yeah. it helps feed a lot of people. And there are a lot of very common Republican talking points against food stamps that don't actually hold up, that aren't actually based in reality. Like, oh, well, it's just it's mainly people that are unemployed and living off the government. Well, that's not necessarily true. A lot of people that are on food stamps are actually working. In fact, I yeah. actually was on food stamps back when I was in graduate school and I was surviving off of a an assistantship salary. Um, yeah, helping to, like, you and, and your wife were both surviving. Yeah, yeah, that. we were both surviving off that. And that was, I mean, it, it was difficult and we uh, we got 
we were on food stamps for that. Um, So 44% of the recipients are actually working families. And you also often have a sort of left-wing counter-argument against people that want to take away SNAP benefits of, well, we need to make sure that we're protecting the children. Like, even if a parent is unable to work or unable to provide certain benefits, um, that doesn't mean you should just take away the food stamps because if they have a kid, then you definitely shouldn't take away the food stamps because just because the parent's not able to do that doesn't mean that you should punish the kid for that. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that they're a bad parent. Like you're not, not at all. you're not, not necessarily. Not, you know, yeah. They're yeah, not absolutely. supposed to like go into the foster system just because their parent is unemployed and, and needs to live on food stamps. Yeah. So, so let's make sure that we're being very clear about what this actual rule change is, because I think that there are some leftists that are, making some they're they're doing a bunch of common talking points in defense of food stamps to address this but they're kind of straw manning it yeah so let's go ahead and address exactly what the change in the program is and then discuss how we feel about it so it'll affect an estimated seven hundred thousand people and it will save it'll cut the program by about 7.2 billion dollars over the next five years and so what the plan actually does is much more targeted than a lot of like liberal news sources might have you uh, like might actually let you know because a lot of them, as we were doing our research, focused on the human element of the story, which makes total sense. They talk a lot about the recipients of food stamps and you know people struggling to get by, which makes total sense. But we don't want to lose the forest for the trees because the rule change is more narrow than just a cut overall to the whole program. So what's going on here, Nathan? Well, so the new rule, and this is uh, according to NBC, so the change affects people between the ages of 18 and 49 who are childless and not disabled. And when they say disabled, what they mean is someone who is physically incapable of working. So under the current rules, this group is required to work at least 20 hours a week for more than three months over a 36-month period in order to qualify for food stamps. So they had to have worked for at least three months in the last 36 months. But states have been able to create waivers for areas that have higher unemployment. The new rule would make it so states could not implement those standards except in areas that have a 6% unemployment or higher. And for reference, the article says the national unemployment rate as of October was 3.6%, so significantly above the federal average. So let's talk about like, so what this is trying to do, basically. So the goal is, if an area has, you know, below 6% unemployment, and if, you know, people in that area uh, are able bodied and able to work, they should work, and they are not going to receive, you know, SNAP benefits if they're not working. Um, and so, uh, according to the Secretary of Ag- Agriculture, Sonny Perdue, the intent is to try to get, quote, every work-able American to find employment. When you first peel the first layer of the onion and you look at this plan, it seems relatively targeted. Yeah. It seems to cut out the more obvious groups of people that we'd want to protect from yeah. being excluded. Yeah, people kids, with disabilities, kids. Disa- yeah. yeah, people that so, are unable to work. Um, and people that are in high unemployment areas where they can't find work. And this is one of the problems I think there is with some of the standard liberal talking points when it comes to defending food stamps, because um, 
you can get around them pretty easy. Well, you can get around them pretty easily uh, with a policy like this. And the implication is, well, if you don't have a kid, then you should just starve. And I think that is the big, one of like the big issues here. So first of all, it's really problematic that it's playing off of this myth. I will be con- I will confidently call it a myth that was started during like the Reagan administration of like welfare queens, like people who have these great lavish lives and they don't have to work because they're getting a bunch of these benefits and they're free riding on the system and they've got it all figured out. And the worst part is that uh, they're black. Yeah. Like that was one of the big things with the Reagan administration trying to paint it as white people. You are having to pay for black people to have these lavish lives. Like the welfare queen is a very racial uh, it, it, it had there. There's a lot of racial implications yeah. that come with that term. Yeah, and it, and it overall, it's playing into this kind of myth that there are just a bunch of people out there that are free riding. But the reality is that a person living in poverty, or even not living in poverty, a person who is um, facing food insecurity, could be experiencing that for a lot of different reasons, even if they can't work. They've successfully cut out people that from being excluded that have like registered disabilities. That's good. They've cut out people with kids. That's great. Um, you can protect them. That's awesome. There's still the fundamental problem that ultimately they're trying to use food, basic sustenance, the security to be able to support yourself with nutrition as a threat to try to get people to work. So let's like let's give let's steal man the other side. Let's say that every one of the 700,000 people under this plan that are receiving this assistance are actually that person that's just trying to free ride. Yeah. So the alternative is let's say get a job or starve to death. Yeah. Which I mean may seem like an like an extreme way to characterize that but you know well where else is their food coming from sure like i would say that there are some things that i think you can hold over people's head in order to incentivize them to get a job but basic needs should not be one of them basic needs should not be something that you are coercing because that means that you really are making a policy based on cruelty and in which the cruelty is the point. Yeah. So I would actually argue I would be less uh, repulsed by this idea if we had a federal jobs guarantee. But Republicans don't support a federal jobs guarantee, which is funny because their whole thing is, well, if you... If you're in poverty, then just just get a job and pull yourself out of poverty. But that's not as simple for people because there's so much that goes into getting a job if you live in poverty. Like something as simple as taking a shower, having clothes, transportation. Like some people have uh, some people have made the argument that there are people that are too poor to get a job. And then like, you know, a Republican might laugh at that, but that's actually true. If a person um, is unable to wash themselves, clean themselves, dress up in any type of professional way to go to a job interview, they're not going to get hired. Yeah. Or if they uh, lack enough money to access public transportation. 
uh, or say they're one of the millions of people in the United States that are having to choose between like food and heat in the winter. Millions of people are freezing cold and risk like hypothermia in, in homes that they live in because they are having to choose between heat and food. And when you provide them a food specific benefit, you're having you're able to remove some of that choice. You're able to say, you know, hey, go ahead and actually eat um, in addition to, you know, not freeze. Yeah. So the important thing about this whole thing is that when liberals are talking about this, they need to make sure that they're accurately portraying what this policy actually does. Do not straw man. Make sure that you are arguing on the same page. Make sure that you are arguing the policy itself because the standard liberal talking points are not going to work with this because um, because a lot of the standard liberal talking points were kind of lazy. Yeah. And let's talk about like a little bit of what it means to be on Snap. So you've got a single individual who is um, a recipient of Snap benefits. That person is eligible for $132 a month for a single individual which comes out to about $4.40 a day. You're not going to steakhouses on $4.40 a day. You're lucky if you can eat fast food on the dollar menu for $4.40 a day. You know, this is, this is not a lavish program. This is a program that's designed to supplement needs. Yeah. And that's what it does. Yeah. So the bottom line is that this is not a good policy. Yeah, and and the thing is like, okay, they've done they've done they've attempted to carve out a group of a segment of the population that is undeserving of this benefit is the way they that it's characterized. But what if that's over-inclusive? What if that's actually capturing segments of the population as Nathan was talking about that should be receiving this benefit, but because you can't perfectly parse everybody there are people that fall through the cracks. Isn't that risk pretty high? You know, like I was reading some articles and some of the people that they talked about were like adults who didn't have custody of their kids, but they used their SNAP benefits in order to help feed them. You know, yeah. so you have a mom who used, you know, who is has custody of her kids and potentially an estranged dad or a dad without custody. So no dependents, um, not like and doesn't have a job or anything like that and is trying to feed his children but can't yeah or people with lack of transportation as we talked about or people who have loved ones that require full-time care yeah without medicare for all those that full-time care is extremely expensive and impossible to hire someone else to do if you don't have money and if it takes truly all of your time you're not able to go out and have a job consistently yeah but you at the same time don't necessarily have a full time, a, a real dependent because say that loved one is a parent. Yeah. So if what you actually care about is making sure that everyone has jobs, which, Hey, I care about that too. Anybody that can get a job, I want them to be able to get a job. Um, then support a federal jobs guarantee. Don't coerce people by taking away their food. And on that happy note, we'll wrap it up with our highlights. Nathan, what's your highlight from this past week? My highlight was the fact that over the last week, I got to see uh, a lot of really good friends. Um, 
Michael and I were able to finally hang out like outside of the podcast and just chill with each other. He and his wife came over and they hung out with uh, me and my wife. Um, and I also got to see uh, one of my best friends from childhood uh, this last weekend who is um, uh, visiting from China. So that was that was a lot of fun too. So that, that would be my highlight. Well, that's great. My highlight is, as usual, I got to hang out with Bree this past weekend, which I loved. We got an extra day because she came up on Friday and we took Friday off so we could go apartment shopping in D.C., which is always a really stressful time to go apartment shopping. But... <laughs> We found a place. We just got approved. So we have a home starting mid-February. Nice. So we're really excited about that. We're going to be living um, in Northern Virginia. So that's a big highlight for me. I'm super excited. We found this great place that's like spacious and sunlit and within our budget. So really big win for us. Nice. All right. That's our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any audience submitted questions that you'd like us to talk about and if we think that they're interesting enough we might do a segment about it so have a great week y'all 